shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever that worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice now verse number 1 of chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. I'm going to pick up the rest of the verses here in just a little bit, but um, this morning I'd like to just share this subject with you and speak about the eternal state, the eternal state. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for what's already transpired in this service, the singing, the fellowship, the honoring of our veterans. Lord, as we come to this moment now, I pray that you'd help us to be attentive Help us to be disciplined enough to put aside any distractions, any thoughts that may come through our mind, to focus on the Word of God here today. Help me to declare the Word of God carefully, succinctly, simply, but yet powerfully. And I pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The Bible... And here in the book of Revelation closes out with this wonderful aspect of heaven and the eternal state. And I would say that all the years that I have been a born-again Christian, it has been amazing to me and actually a little bit humorous as to how people of various ages have viewed heaven. I have met a lot of young people, whether they be in their teen years or early 20s, who often say, I want to go to heaven, but I'd like to accomplish a few things first before I go there. I remember last year, before Ethan and Mitzi got married in November as a year ago, it was probably about two weeks before, I said, Ethan, are you ready for the Lord to come today? He said, I just would hope he'd wait till after my honeymoon, I, you know. <laughs> But you know, you talk to a lot of older adults, people who have been through some bruises and some nicks and bangs in life, and you've had all sorts of tragedies and trials. And boy, it doesn't matter what else goes on in this world, you long for heaven and that eternal state. How wonderful that the Bible closes out in giving us a glimpse of what that heaven is going to be like. The verses I read to you, I'm going to share with you here today, kind of give us this idea of the conditions for the believer. Last week we shared uh, in much of chapter 21 about some of the things that heaven is going to be like. We talked about that new Jerusalem and the measurements that were given and all the beauties that were there. 
But I want to talk a little further as the text gives to us the conditions for you as a believer in being in that eternal state. First of all, I want you to notice, according to verse 22, the first verse that we read, that heaven will be a place of perpetual worship. In that verse 22 that we read, we are told that there will be no temple. Now, what was the temple in the Old Testament? Well, it was a place where people came, the Israelites came, and they worshiped with God. We can go back to the earliest days of Israel's founding, when they came out of Egypt and they were on their way to the promised land, and we can see how God dwelt with them in a thing called a tabernacle. This tabernacle was used all the way through their wilderness wanderings. It was made so it could be set up easily, torn down easily, while they moved through the desert for 40 years. This tabernacle was, a, 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 again, a place where the Israelites worshipped for another few hundred years until King David had in his heart a desire to build a more permanent structure for where God could come and dwell. Well, David ended up not building it, as you know the Scriptures, but his son did. And wow, what a magnificent structure was placed there in Jerusalem. And you can trace that temple through all, throughout the rest of the Bible, that temple that was rebuilt in the post-exilic days, that temple that was expanded by Herod before and during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as we've read about in the book of Revelation, there will be a temple in the tribulation days as well as in the millennium. But I want you to know that more important than just a place where the Israelites would go and would perform their worship before God, the temple was a place where God desired to dwell with His people. How interesting it is that when God's people sinned, it was to the point that in the Old Testament, God had to withdraw His presence from the temple and the Israelites were off into captivity. But my friend, I want you to know God has always desired to dwell with His people. And you can see it when Jesus came to this earth. The Bible says in John 1.14, He came to dwell among His people. The word dwell is that same word, to tabernacle with His people. God came in human flesh to dwell among His people. But God also desires to dwell with those who place their faith in Him. If you're here today and you know Jesus as your Savior, the sweet Holy Spirit, the third person of God's Trinity, dwells in your heart. He dwells there. He tabernacles there. So isn't that interesting here, that in this new eternal state, the Bible tells us that there's no temple. What do you mean no temple? Is God not going to be there? No, I want you to know God doesn't need a structure any longer. Because in heaven, God himself will be there. Today we have temples and churches and cathedrals, but that will all be a thing of the past. These buildings that we set up that are supposed to symbolize the presence of God. Sometimes you go to a place that is supposed to be a, a, a structure 
where we meet with God, but many times we walk away and say, boy, God didn't seem to be there. But I want you to know that someday in heaven, you will not need relics, you will not need ritual, you will not need certain forms of religion, but there will be a pure worship from the heart because God will be there with you. Oh, heaven is going to be a wonderful place because of the worship. But not only will it be a place of perpetual worship, but notice verse 23, heaven will be perfect in beauty. We spoke in a previous message about the jewels and the stones that were used for decoration around the heavenly city. Boy, I wish I could explain. I had somebody make a phone call to me and share with me some things that they had learned about some of the jewels and stones that God is using. And I wish I had time to describe it. But oh, there's going to be a beauty in heaven. Why will heaven be beautiful? Because the very glory of God, His character, and that light will emanate from Him and will be cast out through that new Jerusalem and all of heaven and those wonderful stones and jewels will reflect the very glory of God. It will be a beautiful place. But it will be beautiful because the Bible tells us in verse 23 will not need the sun and the moon anymore. That is, they'll not function as they do now. Now please don't read into it. The passage does not tell us that the sun and moon will be destroyed. Notice that these two created bodies are not needed, as it says in verse 23, to shine in it. God doesn't need the moon to shine anymore like we have it to shine. God doesn't need the sun any longer to shine like it does today. But it tells us here that God Himself will be that light. And therefore, the original purpose of the sun and the moon are obsolete. But then I want you to notice, not only will heaven be a place of worship, a place of beauty... But according to verses 24 to 26, it'll be full of unlimited privileges. How many of you remember the slogan years ago with American Express membership? Wow. Have you all fallen asleep already? I'm going to try that again. How many of you remember that American Express? Just raise your hand for just a moment. Okay, good. Would you all help me out for a minute? Membership? All right, wonderful. Thank you, all two of you. I appreciate you helping me out here. We live in a world full of privileges. Money will keep people from being part of certain clubs and communities. Status of names or accomplishments will allow people to be part of certain venues in this world. But I want you to know something about heaven. Those of you who have trusted Jesus as your Savior will enjoy every bit of heaven and there will be only one class of people, the blood-bought child of God. Now sometimes people often criticize the Bible and they say, well, you know, God is a God that excludes. Because God tells us that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And yes, He is. But I want to say to those that may disparage the Bible and say that God is being exclusive, could you look at the other side of the coin and realize that God is all-inclusive? Let me ask you a question. 
Who is God excluding from salvation? There's no one. The Bible tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, you plug your name in there. If you're not saved today, you can be saved today. You say, well, preacher, I'm not as important as other people. I I don't have enough money to give, or I don't have enough status. I want to tell you, it doesn't matter who you are in this world. It doesn't matter what you've accomplished. It doesn't even matter what you've done. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And what a powerful thing that when we get to heaven, all of those privileges that we find on this earth are now obsolete and gone And every one of us can stand there before God. What are the privileges? Well, notice we're all united before God in verse 24. The phrase that is used about the nations. Now, understand this. You're not going to go to heaven and say, Hey, I'm up here to make America great again. No, no. No more America. No more about Brits. No more about Germans. No more about Italians. But the word for nations is not necessarily the idea of those that are just of a secluded group on a particular land, but it is a reference to all people. And I want you to notice something, that people from every tribe, every tongue and nation will be united before God. But notice, we'll all be equal before God. Verses 24 and 26 talk about these kings that bring their glory Notice what it says there. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. Verse 26, they shall bring the glory and honor the nations into it. We end up reading this in the King James Bible, getting this idea that these kings will come in and kind of puff their chest out a little bit and bring their status and their glory into it. I want to tell you what's going to happen at the doorways of heaven is everybody's going to drop everything that they've ever been, anything that they've ever done in this world, world and they will come in and worship Jesus Christ. There will be nobody staking any claim to anything. All will come and relinquish whatever they had on this earth. There'll be no social structure in heaven. There'll be no poor, rich, or middle class, but we'll all be on an equal footing. But then verse 25, look at this. We all will have access to heaven. It says here, that the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day. Now gates for a city in the Bible days were used for protection. And I think it's important for you to understand that there's nothing anymore to protect. We'll have no evil in heaven. We'll have no worry about robberies. We'll have no worry about thievery. No need to shut the gates. But I like to look at the gates in this idea. That no gates will ever be shut, no doors will ever be closed. That is, there's no secret places in heaven. There'll not be a place that she'll go to as a born-again believer that God will say, "Mm -mm, that's not for you. No, my friend, you'll enjoy all that God has for you. No gates will ever be closed. Heaven will be a place of perpetual worship, a place of beauty, a place of privilege. But verse 27 Heaven will be pure. Oh, we're once again reminded that no sin will be in heaven. Only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life will be in heaven. But now notice the beginning of chapter 22. Heaven will be a place of endless provision. I note these first two verses here 
in particular, it mentions here about the rivers of water, the river of water and the tree of life. Note that river as you read that in the scriptures there. It flows from the throne of God. Notice this, it is pure and clear. Isn't it wonderful to go to a, maybe some lake and, and uh, swim in the lake and be able to maybe see a little bit down in that lake or go out in the ocean somewhere and be able to see towards the bottom? I'm going to tell you, you've never seen any water until you see the water of life in heaven. It'll be so clear and so pure that you'll not be afraid to drink of it. But then he talks about that tree of life. This is the same tree. We, didn't, we don't read about it, but all the way back in the beginning of the book of Genesis, it's the same tree mentioned in the Garden of Eden. This tree was available to Adam and Eve in their sinless state. But once they disobeyed God, God had to remove that tree so that way they would not live forever in that sinful state. But now, all of those that are born again and are there as blood-bought children of God may now once again partake of that fruit of that tree. Why are these two items there in heaven? Some often have these questions, I didn't think we'd eat in heaven. I didn't think we'd have to have any concern about all that. Well, I want you to notice something that there's, first of all, to me, a beauty of all of this. Both of these things are given here for beauty, for pleasure, and prosperity. Right now, you and I eat food and drink water. We do it for pleasure, but we do it mainly out of necessity. But in this wonderful day that we live, we will simply partake of these items, not so much out of necessity, but out of enjoyment. The tree, look at how it's described in verse number 2. It has different f- types of fruits that bear all the time. If you garden today, or maybe you have some citrus trees, you understand that there are only certain times of the year you're going to be able to get certain fruit. But it's interesting here that the tree that is mentioned here that are given for these fruits, they're bearing different types of fruit all through the time. And it's going to be plenteous. And how wonderful. And then he mentions about the leaves here in the end of verse number 2. Chapter 22, verse 2. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now we think to ourselves, now wait a minute. Preacher, I thought you mentioned last week that the curse is lifted. That there's no sickness, no illness. You're right. This healing here is not so much uh, a healing as we think of medicine today. But I believe a good analogy that might help us, and I'm not saying this is a perfect analogy, but might help us understand this. These leaves, I believe, will foster the health of the inhabitants much like vitamins do today. But notice heaven's a place of perpetual worship, a place of beauty, privilege, purity, provision. But verse number three, heaven will be paradise. Look at the first part of verse three. There shall be no more curse. My friend, that day that you step foot over there and you're with God for all eternity, that curse will be lifted. This is indicated by all the things mentioned before that we looked in the previous chapter, number 21, all the things that are not there 
The angel seems to say, he says in verse 20, chapter 21, hey, no night there, there's not this, there's no sorrow, there's no pain. And he tells us, but then he reiterates it again because he doesn't want us to lose the idea of what God's doing. My friend, do you realize today that all of the things that you go through in this life, the heartaches and the headaches and the problems and the toil and the sweat and everything, all that's going to be gone in heaven. You will work without sweating, praise God. Every Samaritan's purse volunteer said, Amen. Amen. You'll be working in a garden in heaven and you'll not be pricked by thorns. Murphy's Law. How many understand Murphy's Law? That'll be a thing of the past. I'm telling you, everything will be perfect because that curse will be lifted. But lastly, I want you to see heaven will be, or actually pleasurable. Pleasurable. Look at here in this verse number 3. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And the last part it says, and His servants shall serve Him. Serve Him. What do we mean by serving? We're talking about work that is done. I think it's important for me to get something out of the way before we discuss what this ultimately means. We will work in heaven. Now, there's some people that have this notion that we're going to be sitting on some cloud, just kind of lounging around, just kind of strumming a harp, you know. I don't know where you got that. But while there will be singing and fellowship and, and pleasure throughout all eternity, we will work. Now, some of you have a hard time imagining that because to you, work has uh, been considered a four-letter word. Work is something to you that is boring, it's monotonous, it's frustrating. But I want to tell you, as we mentioned before, the curse is lifted. Work now will be pleasurable. Work will be enjoyable. You look forward getting up in the morning saying, what do we get to do today? I can't wait. But I tell you what, we'll want to work. I love that phrase, his servants shall serve him. Please note that. There'll be no rebellion in heaven. There'll be no laziness. If you've ever hired somebody, probably the thing that tears you up the most is lazy employees. There'll be no laziness in heaven. There'll be no calling in sick when you're really not sick. There'll be none of that. But all of those that are in heaven will desire to work and serve the Savior at His pleasing. I quote Randy Alcorn, when we think about work, what is it that we'll really do? Randy Alcorn wrote a book years ago titled Heaven. In fact, we have ordered some. We don't have them in yet. But I want to quote what he says. Maybe you'll build a cabinet with Joseph of Nazareth or maybe with Jesus. Maybe you'll tend sheep with David, discuss medicine with Luke, sew with Dorcas, make clothes with Lydia, design a new tent with Paul or Priscilla, write a song with Isaac Watts, ride horses with John Wesley, or sing with Keith Green. But the Bible doesn't tell us specifically what we will do, but I can tell you what you will be doing will be exciting and it will be fulfilling. But now notice verses 4 to 5. Heaven will be personal. It's wonderful to speak about what's there, what's not there, and the incredible beauty of this place. But I want you to think of something for just a moment. 
If you're saved today, you'll be there and you'll be with God. Describe your relationship with God now. Sometimes there seems to be so many barriers between you and God, does it not? We have so many struggles in life, we get down to pray, and we have a hard time being able to express our thoughts to God. But the Bible says, it talks, it gives that phrase face to face. Now, will we literally see a face of God? I I don't know that I can answer that. But I believe that through the Bible, when you see this phrase, face to face, I literally believe that it means this, that we will be in His presence. And my friend, whatever else may go on, what a joy it will be, no matter who else is up there, no matter what the beauty is that we've described, you will be with God. And His name will be in your forehead. This identification, again, whatever this looks like, will demonstrate that you and God will be in heaven together forever. We are God's, and He is ours. There's an old hymn that was written. It was called, I am His, and He is Mine. It goes like this. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, gracious spirit from above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and perfect peace. Oh, this transport all divine in a love which cannot cease. I am His and He is mine. Verse number four, His forever, only His. Who the Lord and me shall part. Ah, with what a rest of bliss. Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light in gloom decline, but while God and I shall be, I am His and He is mine. Do you know Him today? Is He yours? Someday you'll be in His presence. And you'll be able to say that God is yours. And his name will be in your forehead. And God will say, you are mine. Oh, my friend, I may sound like a broken record when it comes to pleading about salvation. But I want to say to you today that if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you're going to miss out on all this. God wants you to be in heaven. He desires that you know him. I'm not going to read the remaining verses, but I want to note the next major section, and that is the closing of this book. As I just wrap this up briefly, there are three main subjects in these verses. I'm not going to go them through them necessarily verse by verse, but three main subjects. Number one, the Word of God is very important. Look at verse number six. Look what he says, chapter 22, verse 6. He says, these sayings are faithful and true. Now, those of you that have been with us through this whole study, I want to tell you something. Everything written in this book is true. God is faithful to his word. 
You say, boy, I, I just don't know how some of these things are going to take place. I, I don't know how God's going to do all this. My friend, I tell you, whether you think it can happen or not, God says it will. Amen. And he'll make it happen. I want to tell you, you can count on this book. The Bible says in verses 18 through 19 about those that detract from the book, those that take away from the book, those that add to this book. And I believe that according to this passage of Scripture, it is referring to those that do harm to the book of Revelation, but to the totality of Scripture. That's not a foreign concept. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2, you shall not add unto the word which I command you. Proverbs 30, verse 6, Thou add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee. Paul told the Galatian believers in chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. My friend, I want to tell you something. This book is complete. As John wrote this, he began giving indication that God was going to go ahead and close out his revelation... Everything you need to know about God is right here. Don't wait back for the newspapers to say, oh, we found a a portion of Scripture that's not been known before. It's not there. Oh, we're waiting for God to reveal something else to us. Oh, we're waiting for God to give us some new revelation, my friend. Everything you need to know about God and about heaven and about life is right here in these 66 books. God has given it to us. And so therefore, as you trample through this world and you'll find the cults and various religions in this world that add to the Word of God or detract from the Word of God, my friend, they are doing harm to themselves. It's very important that you and I hold high the Word of God as sufficient for our lives, as complete for our lives. The Word of God is very important. But notice... Jesus Christ's second major subject is coming soon. Would you look at three verses with me? Look at verse 7. Behold, I come quickly. Verse number 12. And behold, I come quickly. Verse 20. Surely I come quickly. Do you think Jesus is coming quickly? Now, when we think of the word quickly, we think of, oh man, it's going to happen fast. The word quickly has this idea of that which is sudden. We believe that the coming of Jesus could happen at any moment. We use a term called imminent. His coming is imminent. It's near. Oh, my friend, I want to tell you something. Paul thought Jesus would come in his lifetime. There have been believers that we have read about through Christian history that have believed that Jesus was coming in their lifetime. But I'm telling you what, as we live today and as you look at the events that are going on, I want to tell you something. Jesus is coming quickly. Amen. He's coming. And you look at those three statements that are given in there. They are given with some admonition. Verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. The word blessed is there. Happy are those who study out those truths and they look for Jesus. Can I tell you how not to be happy? Watch Fox News all day. Can I tell you how not to be happy? Constantly look at all the things that are going on in this world and just look right around here. But if you truly want to be happy, be looking for the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, he says in verse 12, there's a reward given 
That reward is based here on how we live and it will determine our reign with Him. In verse number 20, there is a comfort and a consolation given to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. I want to remind you, Jesus is coming soon. And three times in the closing of this book, He's letting us know it's going to happen. But then I want you to notice, those who are saved have heaven as their eternal home. You see, the first statement that I make from these closing verses, verses 6 through 21, is this. That the Word of God is important. Number two, Jesus is coming soon. But number three, those who are saved have heaven as their eternal home. You say, where do you get that? Well, look at verse number 11. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. This verse seems to puzzle people, for it seems to be encouraging people to live continually in their wicked lifestyles. But I want you to notice the context that is given. John is being given, verse number 10, these closing words of God's prophecy. And these words are being spoken to those in John's day, and they're being spoken to those in our day who are without Jesus Christ. And I believe what this verse is saying is that those who will continue on in their sin will seal their fate if they refuse to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. But verse number 12, on the other hand, those that are saved and are living for God, God has some rewards for you. Look at verse number 14. It says here, blessed are they that do His commandments. Now, some of you may have a newer version of the Bible that has this phrase, washing their robes. You say, Pastor, am I saved by washing my robes or by doing God's commandments? No, not by doing those things merely alone. But I want to tell you something, that those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ will demonstrate that faith by their life before Jesus Christ. Don't tell me you've just prayed some simple prayer. Don't tell me you've just uttered some little words and and you, you say, well, I'm saved and now I can live any way that I want. My friend, I want to tell you something. Any person that is born again is a new creation in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. But I want to close with verse 21. I want you to notice something. I love these words as I conclude our sermon today. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Amen. So be it. Let it be true. I like that word grace. Grace is literally receiving something that I don't deserve. And can I say to you today that have received Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you ought to be able to testify very simply to the fact that, that heaven as your home, Jesus as your Savior, that's something that's been given to you that you don't deserve. But I'm glad I'm saved today. And I'm glad that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ has been extended to me. So as I conclude this morning, could I ask this, these couple of questions? Number one, have you experienced the grace of God in your life? Oh, if you're here today and you know Jesus Christ is your personal Savior, boy, heaven is just around the corner. Now, I bet you're here today, many of you that have lived for some time,
And boy, you have been through some things in this world. And how many of us sometimes say to ourselves, why, why isn't God coming? Is it real? Is it something that I'm going to be able to enjoy? Seems like I'm going through this life and I can't see ahead. I want to tell you something. Don't give up because Jesus is coming soon. In 1952, there was a young lady by the name of Florence Chadwick. She had gotten into the waters of the Pacific Ocean off of Catalina Island, and she was determined to swim over to mainland California. Two years earlier, she had already crossed the English Channel from France to England in 13 hours and 23 minutes. But now, she desired to swim the 26 miles from Catalina Island to the California coastline. As she began, she was flanked by some small boats that watched for sharks and were prepared to help her if she got tired. After 15 hours being in the water, a deep fog had set in. And that fog began to mess with her mentally. She began to doubt her ability. She told her mother, who was in one of the smaller boats, that she didn't think that she could make it. Finally... Physically and emotionally exhausted, she stopped swimming and got into the boat. It wasn't until she got into the boat that she discovered she was only a half a mile from the coast. At a news conference the next day, here's what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think... If I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. My friend, you know what God does for you? He's showing you the shore. He's letting you see what's there. And I'm telling you what, all that is described here can't really be put into full words because when you get up there someday as a born-again Christian, you're going to be taken back. Your expression will be, wow, God's done this for me? Yes. And He'll be there. Could I ask the second question? Are you who are saved extending this invitation to others? The grace of God is available. You say, Pastor, can I really be saved? Can I really, can, can I really know Jesus as Savior? Verse number 17, I love this. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And he that heareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst, Come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. If you're today without Jesus Christ, all you got to do is come. Let's bow our heads, please. Father, thank you. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the truths that are given to us. Thank you for what you opened up to us about heaven, letting us see a little bit of the shore. Oh my, we're, we're caught up in the fog of this world. But oh God, I pray that every person here today would know you as Savior. While heads are bowed, eyes are closed, how many are here today would say, Preacher, 
I know him as my Savior. If I were to die today, I know that I'd be in heaven. And you just lift your hand as a way of a testimony here today. Would you do that right now? God bless you. You may put your hand down. How many of you are here today and you say, Pastor, I, I couldn't put my hand up. I don't know Jesus as my Savior, but I sure would like to know Him. Well, I'll tell you what, if you'd like to know Jesus as your Savior right now, you could place your faith in Him at your seat at this moment.